no, I used to be the president for the Nigerian American Professional Association. One of my first events that I, that I definitely put on my docket, like, we're going to have this African versus African American and talk about real issues. You know, I could look down the street and I could see a Tyrone, and Tyrone looks like my uncle. Like, Tyrone looks like a family member. But me and Tyrone are so far apart, culturally speaking, that's a chasm. We, we want to bridge that gap. Welcome to Deeper Dish. Today's guest is Boya Day, a Nigerian American residing here in Chicago. His family immigrated from Nigeria about 30 or 35 years ago. Boya Day sits with us to discuss his experiences growing up, living in two worlds, living in a, an American world, but also growing up in a traditional Nigerian household. He has experiences throughout the Chicago area, living on the north side, and also living in the south suburbs, as his family was one of the first Nigerian families to move to the south suburbs. We also spend some time talking about the impact of coming to America and how that impacted his life growing up. And we got into a really good discussion as well about the African versus the African-American in the United States. There's a dynamic there that a lot of people outside of those communities don't see. And then lastly, Boya Day recently has been a founder of a startup. He talks about why he started that business and what it really means to him. Hope you enjoy it. Boya Day. You were gracious enough to come on to the show. Oh, thanks um, for having me. Oh, no problem, man. To talk about the Nigerian Chicago experience, something I know nothing about. And I, I apologize in advance. No. Because I've lived here for eh, 35 of my 37 years, and I don't know enough about it. I have a few friends that are Nigerian, and it, it's one of those things that if you don't ask them, they're not really kind of like pounding their chest saying, hey, you need to come and embrace this culture. Right, right. right. I know you have an interesting story migrating to the country and your family coming here, and then you had a struggle early on, kind of adjusting. But before we get to all that, let's just jump right into this elephant in the room, the coming to America, the movie. You're very open about the movie is funny. Yeah, the movie it's is a, funny, it's, and it's, it is a classic. It's a classic movie, right? but this movie caused you a lot of problems as a kid. How old were you when this came out? So when the movie came out, I must have been like six or seven. The difference was... During that time, I lived in a predominantly white suburb at the time, which is not anymore in the south suburbs. So we moved from the city. I think we were living in Lansing around that time. Okay. And Lansing was at the time was predominantly white, very close to the Indiana border. But then after leaving Lansing, we moved to Dalton, which was at the time mixed, so more diversity. Mm -hmm. People let me have it. I got the King of Zamunda, you are Princess Zamunda. <laughs> Uh, do you kill? Do you have lions at home? Do you cut your hair with sticks and stones? Wow. Like the whole like, where where did you get this from? Like from the movie. It? it came from the movie, and then you know, yeah. like you know, Prince Hakeem. And now on the flip side, my uncles, who were a lot older, probably dealing with a lot of older, sophisticated women. They were loving it. Like they had girls left and right. They just loved the African vibe, the accent, right. especially when they get dressed up in their traditional attire. It was great for them. You were way too young for that. I was way too young for that. And kids are vicious. Like, mind you, this is pre this is way before social media. So imagine if social media was yeah. going on back then. Right. Like, you know, it was, it was right. crazy. So kids are unfiltered, right? Sometimes it's great stuff. Sometimes it's just mean. So you do think that hurt your development at all? I want to say it hurt my development, and I, the reason why is because the way my parents and my household was structured, yep. like it was all outcome driven. I don't give a damn what anybody said about you. Well, what, what are your grades? Did you get an A? 
okay, you got an A minus, or you got a ninety nine. Where's the other one? Like, if I come home and tell my mom that so and so called me a nigger, or so and so said X Y Z, she's like, okay, did I send you to school to go make friends? No, wow. I sent you to go to school to go learn. So I don't care what anyone else. They didn't have to deal with it. I had to deal with it. So I had to kind of find a balance. I had to kind of find an anchor. So I always anchor myself in academics. No matter what people said about me, I could always come back with them like, you're stupid, I'm a smart. As a kid, that had to be yeah, my defense, yeah. like my academic defense. Like That's interesting that you found your anchor than the thing that your parents told you to focus on, which yeah. is academics. Yeah, and this is me being defensive, of course. I'll go up to kids who obviously couldn't read. At, you know, They should, should be able to read. I'm like, yo, read this. And then they start laughing at them. Right. That would be my kind of comeback to the African. Right. I have my, have my way of kind of uh, leveraging my strengths. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where I rooted my confidence in. A lot of folks, when they immigrate to a new place, a lot of different ethnic groups, they either they find a church or they find a community of people like themselves. Mm-hmm. So when your family came here, did you all do that as well? Did oh, yeah. There's churches here, all types. I mean, you go from the Redeemed Church, the Celestial Church, the Cherubim Seraphim, the Christ Apostolic Church, Mountain of Fire. Tons of Nigerian churches yeah. or ministers have come. And it was church, but then it's kind of how we surround people with culture. So we were singing in our, you know, in Yoruba. So... Mm-hmm. That's how a lot of us actually learned Yoruba because we were singing in it. Right. And we had right. the kind of, and they had the English version, they had the Yoruba version. Mm-hmm. So it was a way to really anchor us in our culture. So I, I, now that I think about it, it was actually kind of a godsend that we had those churches kind of right. bring the community together. Because right. that's how we all end up growing up and know each other. Your family started out on the north side, right? So yep. a lot of folks, when they come to Chicago, Rogers Park, that area uptown is yeah. very diverse. Some streets you walk down, you you wouldn't even think you're in Chicago. You're like, oh, that's that's a foreign place, right? right. Yeah. But then your family moved. Was there a vibrant Nigerian community south? No, there was not at all. Um, <laughs> so, so how was that? It, it, it eventually grew. Right. But the whole thought process is if you think about how a lot of our parents grew up, they grew up in compounds. So they grew up in, imagine like we take the four houses here and the four houses across the street, mm-hmm. put a fence around it, and everybody's in your family. They had each of those houses. That's how they grew up. Yep. So this communal living and apartment style was just like, okay, this is temporary. I need to get my own backyard. I need to get this. I need to get that to have my own space to kind of mimic that environment, even though- What you're accustomed to. But they were accustomed to. So right. they moved out there primarily because, you know, was able to get, you know, affordable, a house, a right. big enough house for the family they had at the time. When you're on the north side, you have baked-in kind of infrastructure, right? Right. You have the restaurants. You have the way of life. And then they make this move south. But then there's this thought in their head- well, if we want to create that same type of thing, we need to get a house. Right. That's got to be daunting. Or they were just, like you said, results-driven, like, this is what we need to do. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, I, they didn't consult me in the matter oh, at all. Oh, of course not. So, I mean, you're a kid. Uh, so, a lot of the well-to-do, like Nigerian, the doctors, the yeah. pharmacists, the mm-hmm. lawyers, had houses, mini mansions, mansions in the south suburbs, like Flossmore, yeah. or Olympia Field, Madsen. All those places. It was kind of a way to kind of keep score where okay. you live type of thing. So, so you think that was their... Approach? I think my dad's approach was along that line. I don't think it kind of quite played out that way. Yeah. By the time I actually ended up going to college, there was a tons of Nigerians that moved out to the south yeah. suburb between South Holland, Cayman City, and Dalton. I used to live in Homewood. You're going to find a, a very high percentage concentrated wealth among black people out there. And so I can see why someone would move out there. What brought your family here originally? School. My dad actually got accepted to two schools, University of Oklahoma and Chicago State. He picked Chicago. Uh, I don't know who he knew here. And he ended up getting his bachelor's Chicago State, and that's what decision. So I brought my mom. They had me here shortly thereafter. So, yeah, my mom, uh, while he was going to school, driving cabs, which uh, that's very customary. Everybody has had a cab gig along their journey, even yeah. if they're doctors, where they are now. Going to school, driving cab, 
Mom had me support her to get her nursing degree because she was a nurse back in Nigeria. So she got her nursing degree here. And then we just been in Chicago, the Chicagoland area ever since. So I'm always curious when people come from a different climate, why the hell would you choose Chicago? And I've actually tried to study this. For example, there's three major ethnic groups. Now, there's over 250 ethnic groups in Nigeria. Just to get the Nigerians hearing me and they think that I'm just dissing their ethnic group. But there are three major ethnic groups. There's the Yoruba, the yeah. Igbo, and Hausa. No, no disrespect. No disrespect to the Ajaws, the Edos, the you BBOs. You, you, you can't go. I can't all even go all two fifty. But you know, shout out to y'all. I love y'all. One night, John. But so those are the three major ones, right? And what you notice here is like I noticed that there's a lot more Yoruba people in the okay. northern states, like the you know, Clevelands, the Chicago's, the Detroit's, the Minnesotas, the Boston's, and there's a lot more Igbos like in the southern states, like in the okay. Texas, um, the Florida's, the, those areas, the Atlanta's. I'm like, okay, what you will probably typically see, this might be true for all immigrant groups. A lot of them are highly congregated around universities because most of us come here for school. So you have a city that has a lot of universities, a lot of high-profile universities or just universities generally, you will see a Nigerian. It, it could be KKKU. A Nigerian will be at that university somehow, <laughs> some way. They, I, I, I gained a mission to KKKU. I'm going. So it's just like they don't care about what it had, no, what the, no, anything. No, it's just it's a university, and I need to get a university degree. So you mentioned the 250 ethnic groups in Nigeria. You mentioned the three main ones. For a person from the outside to my listeners, what's the difference between those three ethnic groups? So majority of this is language, culture, and regional. The Hausa, the Hausa Fulanis are typically the northerners, predominantly Muslims. The Igbos are typically Easterners. There's two main rivers, the River Niger, the River Benue, and then they confluence in the middle of the country. Part of my geography um, discussion here. Yeah. So we talk about Easterners, we talk about east of that confluence. And we talk about the Westerners, which are the Yorubas, that's um, my ethnic group. And the Igbos are predominantly Christian. Seven-day Adventists, Catholics, Protestants, you name it. While the Yorubas are very religiously mixed. You see Yorubas who are Muslims, Christians, still doing traditional spiritual. Some do all three. You know, hey, just, you know, you get in where you fit in with God, so I'm right. just going to cover all my bases. That's typically the main difference. And then you also see the cultural difference. Like, especially with Yoruba people, they're very, very, respect is big. If you're older than someone, especially if you have age, you give them deference no matter what. For example, your mom, like, I had to kind of pause for a little bit because my, my, my inclination is to, like, kind of prostrate for her because she's an elder and she's a woman and she's right. an older woman. Right, right. So, like, you know. Like, just, like, seriously prostrate. Like, prostrate. Like, you know, good evening, Ma, yeah. what have you. And we, you know, we, we grief everything. Like, you know, like, oh, welcome. How are you? You know, you know, sit down. No, it's just, it's just a big thing. Right, like, right. respect is a big right. thing. Not to say that it's not big in other cultures. It just expressed differently. Has there been a history of problems between these ethnic groups? Oh, yeah. So, um, the Nigerian Civil War, the Biafran War, caused a lot of ethnic discord in Nigeria. And it's primarily the seeds that were by the colonial masters, in which they kind of gave the northern part of Nigeria rule over the southern part of Nigeria. You know, we just have ethnic groups competing to be the best. So with that comes one-upmanship, distrust. Now you see a, a little bit less, because you start seeing a lot of more inter-ethnic marriages going on. So what do you tell a child who has an evil mother and you're by father? Like, what are you, you know? From an ethnic group standpoint, you, right. at that point, you're just Nigerian. There is that discord that's been going on since before the country was founded, and it's still going on now, but I think people are starting to wisen up. I'm, at least I'm being hopeful. Even the way Africa was even constructed with the Berlin Conference, and then you just put a group of people together, we just draw these artificial borders of, of people who never even known each other before, right. and we're going to call them a country. Right. And we're going to expect them to get along. I mean, that in and of itself was going to be cause for future discord. Especially when you have... 
outsiders trying to make that decision. Outsiders made that decision, and then you put 170 million people in one pot with okay. 250 ethnic groups and all these different religions. I mean, you got a lot of layers to get through. Does that carry over to here, that discord? It does carry over, but then I think quickly people realize, like, yo, we all we got. So we got to kind of work together. Like, you know, you, you your name is Okwechukwu. My name is Boyede. Hey, we're, both our names are not common here, so we're going to have to figure out a way to link up. Right. Um, you have cities like Lagos, which is kind of a melting pot. It's in the West, traditionally a Yoruba city, a former capital of Nigeria. So you have people who interacted with these cultures. So people are not coming totally like, I'm this, this is my first time meeting this type of person. So I think people are starting to say, like, yo, we have to, I mean, even from a Nigerian standpoint, mm-hmm. I mean, even other Africans, like, yo, yeah. I understand where you're coming from. Let's do this together. We spent some time talking about your parents why they came here their experience i want to talk about your experience you're here you're young but you're in this nigerian culture right you probably have an accent you probably don't know a lot of people your parents value education getting thrust into this different culture it had to be difficult my first language wasn't even English. My first language was Yoruba. And then when I started going through the public school system here, I would say things like chocolate, like chocolate. I would say it like that. So they had to make me go through speech therapy for that. Being amongst different people, it was, it was an adjustment. I mean, because my world when I'm at home and through the weekends is Nigeria, even though I'm here settled in the, squarely in the middle of the United States in the Midwest. Right. So, yeah, those challenges definitely existed. I'm growing up I'm in a predominantly white neighborhood. Yo, like, racism was real. Like, I was called a nigger in elementary school, like, first, second grade. And then, I didn't, even though I didn't know what it meant, yeah. I knew it wasn't good. Because right. the, the vitriol, like, he said it. And I'm thinking, now, now. Oh, he, he said it with some hate. He said it with some hate, but I'm thinking about, like, how does a six, seven years old, like, how are you coming with that, that level of hate? I think about this all the time, right? Because the white people I knew were my teachers, right? But every once in a while, you get thrown into a situation where it's, you know, you're around white people. You're on a field trip. Like, and you hear certain things, and I look back and I go, for them to be that comfortable using that type of language with that much hate, it has to be said so much at home where it's it's just normal to say that. I went to this school, like, near Little Italy, Andrew Jackson Language Academy, yep. right across from Whitney Young. And the school was one-third Mexican, one-third black, one-third white, and but most of them were, like, refugees or immigrants from Eastern Europe, right. right? Like, in the 90s, all that stuff was going on over there. But there was a small population of Italians, too, that sent their kids there. I mean, they dropped the N-word all the time. And they'll, 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 they'll say it to you and be like, I'm not talking about you. You, you cool for us. Talking about these <laughs> these people over here, I'm like, you must say this, talk like this around your family all the time, and it's like that shit's not cool. You don't know, know what to do with that as a kid. You know, as a kid, you're looking for acceptance. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. okay, I'm not a nigger, but they're a nigger, but that's not cool. They call him a nigger, and right. you know that, right? But right. for me, I was like one of two of these niggers right. in the school. So I would get into fights a lot. I would never forget. I remember going to the restroom, and this is when corporal punishment was still permissible in, the, in public schools. And I remember using the bathroom. You know how the little stalls that go to the floor. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you shake it out a little bit, make sure everything, you know, cool. Right. And right. I think a drop must have got on this, this kid's shoes. And all of a sudden, like you know, parents want me kicked out to school, and and the principal wants to spank me. All, I mean, all this crazy stuff. I remember, like, I was a very active kid. I remember one principal, uh, one of the schools I went to, told my dad and my mom that they should consider giving me a lobotomy to calm me down. I'm like, these are real documented things that people have said. Thank God my parents weren't parents that were like, okay, we'll do whatever. 
this person says because like yeah, I don't know where I would have been. That's crazy that someone would recommend that for a kid. I mean, the obvious question is where they come from. Is it exactly? Was it really in my best interest, or what? was it in your best interest? Was this go a eugenics project for you? Like, right. like what what, <laughs> right. what what are you really on? So, but all that to say that I mean, those are the shared experiences that I carry for. So even with my son, I'm very intentional about what I expose him to because exactly, even yeah. in Africa, there's this europhilic worship. The white man is almost a god, and it actually is a god because Jesus is white in Africa. And to the point where, like, you can't tell. You could, I could have a full ar- argument with somebody in Nigeria, like, Jesus is not white. Like, yes, he is. And, you know, so you have this this thing that's ingrained in you. Like, this God is white. He gives you everything you need. So, of course, you're going to have, when you come across a white person, this thought that, hey, it must be good. Or you have your colonial masters who, you know, were British and everybody wanted to be, you know, Anglophile and dress posh and, and talk this way and, yeah, yeah. and speak the Queen's English and all the other stuff. And then... So now it's getting to a point where like we could actually, and this is one positive of the internet and social media, where a lot of the truths are out there. You could go research it. Yep. You can kind of go see what was done, you know, mentally to people. So no, I used to be the president for the Nigerian American Professional Associations. One of my first events that I, de- that I definitely put on my docket, like we're going to have this African versus African American yeah, event. Yeah, go Bring these diverse group of people together and talk about real issues that are like, you know, I could look down the street and I can see a Tyrone and Tyrone looks like my uncle. Like Tyrone looks like a family member. But me and Tyrone are so far apart, culturally speaking, that's a chasm. We, had okay. to, we want to bridge that gap and talk about our shared experiences. And while I had this event, just like how I laid about colonialism, these are not different things that happen. It was not dissimilar to what happened to African-Americans here, right? No doubt. Of course, over here, way more brutal. The whole aspect, the whole transportation alone was, was way more brutal, but the the system, mm-hmm. the mind thing, the system, and the, and the breaking down and the divide and conquer yeah. was very much the same. So when we start to kind of realize as a group that we actually have a, a shared experience, a shared history, but it was running in parallel, never intersected. So it was never an appreciation of what happened. So you have, on one hand, African Americans who are resentful of Africans for, oh, you all sold us into slavery, and while you all are joining over here, not knowing that Africans were slaves in their own country. You had King Leopold cutting people's hands off. You have South Africa, where it's pretty much Europe in the southern part of Africa, and dominated the people there. So you have people who've gone through the same experience, but they just didn't get exported. So yeah, so it, it was real cool. I mean, then you have other things. Like I said, my parents' background, their, their thought process, like school, 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 school. Yeah, yeah. When I was going to school, I had cats who were happy to graduate high school, which was like, what? I didn't get full respect, really, until I got my master's degree. And then you became an adult. Okay, you have a master's. <laughs> you got a master's. Okay. Now, now now, we can talk. Now, now you have mine. You know? yeah. But before then, like, yeah. oh, you don't have a bachelor's? Because for my grandfather, my great-grandfather, all of them were educated. So even though they were educated in Nigeria, they were still educated. So having a degree, you weren't the first to make it out or the first to do something special because, like, okay, this is this is what we do. You had this event, right, and you talked about this African-American versus African thing. What were some of the specifics that came out? Um, dating. Dating African men. How the, you know, African men are, you know, aggressive, possessive, this, that, and the third. Africans look down on us. That's African-Americans. African-Americans are perceived to being lazy. They don't work hard. They've been here. They haven't taken advantage of opportunities. People can't see. I'm just. I'm nodding because I, I hear it, right? Yeah, I, I mean it. the whole um, African Americans you know, lack culture because I mean some of the stuff they say, like you no, know, the African, like you want to start a fight with African, call him African booty scratcher, like no matter what age. That used to be the number one kick it off. Like, okay, we, now, now like, we're <laughs> you literally gonna, just right, cracked your right, knuckles. Yeah, exactly. Now, <laughs> I didn't say anything, man. I didn't even give you the no, look. No, no, what I'm saying, but those were fighting words. You can say well, a lot of stuff. But you say African, African booty scratcher is going down. 
Yeah, okay. I, I mean, I remember when, young, when I was younger, that, that probably came out a, a couple yeah. times. So, uh, so yeah, like so. young, young, like 10, 11. People hold resentment towards that because a lot of people, because now it's cool to be in touch with your roots. Now it's cool to be woke and be cultured and, and know your history. And all. Now that now that's cool, but, but before, before it became cool, it was tough for a lot of us Africans in the diaspora growing up and experiencing that because information wasn't as, as readily available as it is now. Uh, you, you talked about within countries and within regions separating people, right? I actually think that it was a little bit more sinister. It was not only separating people in regions, but separating people across the world, right? African-Americans and Africans didn't create the rift. It, it was set forth, like, you all are different. You stay to your own, like, whether it be African-Americans, people from Afro-Caribbean, people from Africa, you, you stay with your own country. We've always been segmented out. I think it goes even a step further, right? And you're right. People now are, are kind of waking up and, like you said, being called woke. But that opportunity, like you said, was always there. The internet has been around forever. Right. Like, in our lifetime. If you want the information, there's no reason if you don't know something that you can't get your hands on it. Before the internet, everybody, you get a library card is free or a dollar at the most. I actually remember going to the library and going to encyclopedias and it's just things that people, like, we, we won't remember this. We won't remember encyclopedias. We won't remember cell phones. But information is easy. Like, literally, if you ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I go, I'm going to go to Google. I'm going to go to this website. And I think people are doing it, but I also think that there's an element of people are, like, profiteering off of this this idea. You have to be very conscious about what you consume. And you yes. always have to cross reference. You can't have one source of, of information. Yes. And and whenever you do talk to somebody, like for example, we for my company, we um just did like a Caribbean spot. And I talked to I called literally called all my Jamaican friends and had them listen to it before we even released it. Cause like I don't want to be that guy. To be offensive culturally appropriate something yeah. which I'm trying to actually pay homage to. So once I got there like seven of their blessings, I'm like, okay, cool. I think you're right though. I mean when you think about just the whole transatlantic experience, then you think about fast forward to now, like I have people who tell me I have African privilege. Fuck that mean, African privilege. Like they're like, Well, like, you know, white people are more comfortable with Africans than African Americans. Which I could possibly see a little bit of what they're saying, but... From an African-American experience, what you're talking about, that's real. If I go into corporate America and I change my name to your name and I have the same background, people will look at me differently. I'm not saying it's right. Right. I wouldn't call it African privilege because in the grand scheme of things, we walk down the street and no one knows our name. People look at us and treat us the same. I can respect it and I can acknowledge that that exists, but I can't totally honor that. Because when you say African privilege, I think privilege is rooted in a sense of power. So we think about white privilege, white privilege because they, the you know, structural you know, powers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and then also when you think about power, power is immutable. Like the U.S. is a powerful country no matter where in the world you are. It doesn't stop at a border. Maybe at Russia it probably stops there. But other than that, you know what I'm saying, I'm just saying. Does it stop? I don't know. We, we might be the United States or Russia. Who knows? Who knows? We got a mold in office. But you, you see what I'm trying to say. So like, cause on the flip side, if I take you to Nigeria with me, you're going to get way more love than I will. Because, like, oh, Farah Williams, okay, they're going to, they're like, okay, cool, you're from America, they're going to start asking you different I'm, things. I'm different. Right, you're, you're, you're different. So it depends on the situation. And from that standpoint, from a privilege standpoint, and the ability to be immutable, I think that's more of a construct going further to what you said earlier, to divide. A lot of times when people say, you know, race is a construct, or that is a construct, there's some real life shit that no. come with it, right? You get treat you get treated differently. I, I go to I go to the globe. I'm big in the soccer. I go up there. Some of these Chelsea fans are, are from Africa. I'm, I'm Chelsea. I'll so okay. go I'll go and, blue. And I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm wearing an Arsenal kit and this this guy's wearing a Chelsea and we're cool. But people definitely treated us different and we were having a good time. We were arguing, playfully arguing, 
but there are people coming up to us treating us very differently based on how we were you know, speaking and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But there are these stereotypes out there that I actually hate. I don't like them. Like, like African Americans are this, and Africans are way are way more educated. And there was a point where like Africans were only going to date white people, and I was like, I don't get that. Like, I had a girl, Nigerian girl, tell me. Like my dad would never let me date you. Honestly, that, that to be perfectly honest, <laughs> exactly. that is fucking. So you, this is the pecking order, right? He would call you Inkata or something like that. I if do. you're African American and somebody calls you Akata, hit him in the mouth. You, you, have, you have my permission, right? Because Akata is kind of like saying nigga. It's like saying a wild animal. So where did that come from, right? So a lot of cab drivers when they were here, mm-hmm. when they got stuck up, who stuck them up? Now, now I might say that I don't know if there's any data to support that, but a lot of them had a lot harder time with the African American patrons. So okay. over time, that came like okay, like you're just like a wild animal, like wild, a wild jackal, like a wild dog. Going back to my experience, and I kind of have a hybrid experience. So grew up here, I played the African American fraternity. I'm in the Bronzeville area. I'm in the community. So I'm very rooted in my culture, but I'm also very engaged with my community. So I know these stereotypes are just that stereotype because there are people who are higher level thinking, who are progressive, who think outside of their four square blocks. Um, I had I dated a girl who, after dating me, subsequently married a white guy. And it was okay for her parents, but as long as she didn't bring an African-American home, she was cool. Like, he had, he had to be... Or Yoruba guy specifically, specifically from her village, if he could get that. But or if he can't dude. get that, maybe, then he could be a Yoruba guy. And if he's not a Yoruba guy, maybe he could be Igbo, Nigerian. If he's not that, he, okay, you could, do, you could do African, like just generally anybody else from the continent. After that, you could do a Caribbean. No. And after that, you could do... Well, there's a whole bunch of levels. You got, you got levels to it. There's levels to the joke. There's levels to the shit. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> after that, then it's like, okay, you could do a Caribbean. And uh, then after that, you know, you could do a white guy. Before you get to African American, and it's this whole thought about the perception of dealing with yeah. like what people see, like you know, Auntie Nini, you know, what I'm saying. And then on top of that, it doesn't help that you have a couple of people who had bad experiences to extrapolate it to. This is what happens if you do this. Like I had an uncle that got he got a kitty missing now because his wife shanked him. She's from the West Side too. Oh, okay, I'm from the West Side too. <laughs> so, so, that. so you hear that stuff like, oh yeah. man. You got, you got kidneys, so do you see, see, see why you don't do? You, like, raise up his shirt. Right. You see this? Right, exactly. This, but then, this is African-American But then, right but then on the flip side, you have a lot of Africans who are in these homes who are living in very loveless marriages. One of the questions I've been kind of itching to ask you, you go through this experience, and there's drama, there's people throwing uh, racial slurs at you, you meet new people. Did you ever come to a period where you're like, this is home, I'm good, I don't feel that immigrant tag, I'm always going to be Nigerian, but... I'm good now. I probably did when I got to college, specifically my sophomore year. I went to probably the one of the most diverse schools in the country, at UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago. All types of cultures there. I mean, it was even more Nigerian, other ethnic groups I never met before. And I think at that point, I found out my story wasn't unique, that there are others that went through the same thing, same, very similar experience, and we can you know, commiserate. At that point, I'm like, okay, I can be very, very culturally rooted. I could appreciate the values and the opportunities that the American experience provides me and like also still be very much in tune with my culture as well. Right. So the early stages of my self-actualization, so to speak. That's amazing. I think that's what college is for in general. But it's also kind of hard to hear that you waited until you were 19, 18, 19, 20 years old to feel that way in a place that you've lived your whole life. I went from being called a nigger, ER, at the school in Lansing, and then going to school in Dalton being called a nigger. 
Yeah. I was confused as hell. Like, what? What's the difference? I went from being made fun of for different things, being African in a predominant white school, then the whole King of Zamunda, right, Booty yeah. Scratcher, all the other stuff. So, roast. Yeah. My God, played the dozens. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. man. It, the old African jokes always throw me off. Growing up in a culture where that I wasn't really attractive to predominantly African-American women at the time. It wasn't cool. Like, they liked, you know, the light-skinned, Albie Shore, wavy hair. So, so shout out to Wesley Snipes and uh, Morris Chestnut. For putting dark skin back on the map, even beyond that, I still didn't have that that swagger. Like a lot of my classmates at the time spent more money on hill figures and a nautica with the with the little uh, keychain tag hanging from the coat oh, yeah, and the yeah. and the coach wallets and stuff like yeah. that. And I was just like, yo, just I got one pair of shoes. I'm wearing these joints. Right. Them. You you sit here and you're really chill about some really difficult shit that happened to you, right? You had all these different experiences. And you're like, yeah, I kind of found myself self-actualization in college. And like, they would have broken a lot of people. Like I said, my parents were very outcome-driven. I knew yeah. what I wanted to do. Right. Well, I know, at least I knew what impact I wanted to have. How I was going to go about doing it, right. I didn't know. But I knew I wanted to you know, be something, be somebody. There's a famous saying. My dad, I'm sure you guys from somebody else, but he said, don't chase women, chase money. Because when you get money, women chase you. You could use that analogy towards a lot of other stuff. Like we talked about the young lady who, you know, oh, you have a business? Yeah. Oh, her ears perked up a little bit differently. They, you know what they did. When people see that you're kind of goal-oriented, they look at you and they treat you a little bit differently. You're bootstrapping your own business yep. right now. Yep. So tell me a little bit about your business, where it came from, why you thought you were the person to do it. Yeah, so I'm the co-founder and CEO of uh, e-commerce and app business called Ajai Express. It's an ethnic grocery delivery platform. Essentially, you can pretty much go onto our app or onto a website, website coming soon, where you can pretty much select all your ethnic groceries and have it delivered directly to your home the same day. Why me? Like, why not me? I had a lot of business ideas. I remember writing all these business ideas. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Put it on shelf, didn't do it. I think one turning point in my life, I remember I wanted to have these African fabric-inspired ties. Because I like the fabrics, but I also wanted to be able to, kind of, to subtly express myself in a corporate setting. I got a logo, got all this other stuff, you know, started sourcing fabrics, all this other stuff. Didn't do anything. Stalled on it or I was dragging my feet. Two years later, I see a GQ magazine with an African guy. With Doing African, it. I'm like, I told myself, the next time I have an idea that I think is solid, I'm going for it. Come what may, just going to ride it to the end. Basically, we live in Bronzeville. There's no ethnic grocery stores around. So to get your specific, like, for example, African groceries, you got to go to two or three stores that are not very conveniently located. So I started thinking about, like, can they just deliver? Like, no. no. They don't have to because they own the own market. Then one of my friends, his wife, we were talking one day, and she uses Peapot. And she was kind of lamenting how even though she uses Peapot, she still has to make a trip to the quote-unquote African store to get all her African products. That's where the light bulb really went off. So I started to do some research. I mean, you can get it delivered, but like if I wanted my fresh goat meat and my fresh you no know, produce, I still had to go to the store. So even if I got the dry goods and canned goods delivered, I couldn't get the other stuff. I still had to make that trip. So I talked to my co-founder, Fala Dada. Shout out to Fala. And he's the CTO coder in the group. Mm-hmm. And then we just kind of came together and we just started going at it. So. so what are some of the hurdles early on? I've never heard of this specific type of idea. Sometimes when you create something very new people are like uh, is there a market for that what, what's, what's... exactly that's a conversation we had with a lot of investors like there a market for that well 26 percent of the u.s is first and second generation immigrants that's about 81 million people total across the u.s people are very very personal with their food especially when you talk about cultural foods they want things very very much like how mom used to do it in the village or how they did it so that trust factor of getting people to say hey i want this company to do this for me so we had to kind of overcome that 
And then also another hurdle is getting the word out there. We think there's a huge market for foodies and people who travel to different countries and want right. to recreate those meals. Right. So right. how do we leverage or how do we tap into those markets to get mm-hmm. those people who, who might have done like a, a mission trip in Nigeria yeah. Yeah. and want to recreate that special dish they had in that village and know they have access to it. Right. But other than that, it's just grinding. It's the everyday grind. When you have a startup, you're constantly iterating, tinkering what works but doesn't work, going with the pulse of your followers and your audience. Give me one idea. That early on, you were like, this shit's awesome. There's no way this is not going to work. And then you soon found out, this shit, that was bogus. That was a bad idea. <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's been so many. I'm just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you know, the quarterback that we throw interception, you got to have a quick memory and get, get past it. So I just kind of yeah. like throw it away. Oh, yeah. One of the ideas was, so we've been reading this book called Traction. So in this book, they tell you about, there's one story about this guy in Philly who has like $100 Philly cheesesteak. And because it's $100 Philly cheesesteak, people are lining up because it's so exclusive. Like, I, I just ate $100 Philly cheesesteak. So my co-founder like, yo, we should make this super exclusive, like the Philly cheesesteak guy. Like, so, you know, only certain type of people can get it. Bro, no, we need we need, we need need traction. We need to get as many yeah. people. Exclusivity is not the name of the game. So those are the early things we kind of threw out there and, mm-hmm. and, and thought about, but we've been pretty methodical. Most of the ideas are pretty solid. We want to see what sticks with people. Another market is folks like me and mm-hmm. you know, my family, multicultural family. We, exactly. we just try different things. My wife has been to Africa and in different countries. I haven't, but we would try some things. I Googled all these. I was like, that looks pretty Delicious and tasty. But then having somebody bring it to first of all, if you were to even do it yourself, like, okay, where would I go? And then when you get yeah. there, like, how do I navigate these aisles? And I would just shoot you a text or shoot Akeen a text and be like, what's the best Nigerian restaurant in Chicago? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a question. That's a real question. Oh, that's that's tough because I'm friends with all of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I don't want to get, uh, I don't want to <laughs> get people. So, so I heard you said this person was better than mine. So, what's the neighborhood that have them? Uptown, West Rogers Park. Where most of the people are, are, are living. Specifically, so my college roommate was the owner of Balat or Yanze, Chef Emmanuel Abiremi, Simi's, which is a newer restaurant. It's pretty good, too. So those are definitely two restaurants I could put my name behind, like my reputation behind. No disrespect. Those, those are the ones that kind of rose up. They take time to really, really focus on quality, customer service. Well, customer service is real, real big with us. We talk to our customers a lot. Like 30 minutes after our delivery, you're going to get a survey. Like how was your experience? We're still very much in the MVP stage, constantly updating things and, and integrating things into the app, yeah. into the, uh, to the website to make things as customer-friendly as possible. We're yeah. really trying to take that traditional experience. So not just with African food or Caribbean food, but we, this could be applied to Indian food, and yeah. which we're going to be adding those to our platform or, or Chinese food or Korean food. Right. So we want to make sure that we're all things ethnic, cultural immigrant foods that you can kind of have one source to get everything you need. Are you just based here in Chicago right now? Right now we're based in Chicago, but stay tuned. A major announcement coming soon. So. Is this something that you could be happy with just in the Chicago market? No, I'll be, we, need, we need to be... We need to be out there. Houston, we need to be in Atlanta, we need to be in D.C., New York, Cali, L.A. Do you add more ethnic foods or do you stick to what you know and then expand? Stick to what you know and expand. Like, you know, you have to have your base. So it's like Nigerian, Caribbean. West African, you actually say Latin American in some degrees. And Caribbean is our sweet spot right now. We're also going to be bringing on people to help us. So we're, we're not going to be just doing Indian food and not having somebody representing that culture right, right. to help guide us to what's important. And There's history behind these foods yeah. that we eat. So you want somebody who respects that and treats food with the respect that yeah. it deserves for your culture. You did a really great job of explaining kind of your experience, your parents' experience, you know, the community which you lived in, the, and then outside the community, uh, you all were like pioneers moving out to the south suburbs as far as Nigerians go. What is it that you do as, as a parent to like hold on to that culture 
and pass that on to your kids. And the second part of the question is, how is that, do you think that's going to be, their experience going to be different than yours? First of all, they have Nigerian names, first, middle, last. They, they also have the meaning of their names written out, so they know, like, and they, they're proud of it. I make sure they recite their names, like, I am... And then, you no, know, make sure they're proud of what they're doing and proud of who they are. And they knew who they, where they come from. My son has already been to Nigeria. He's actually, in the past three or four years, been to Nigeria more than I have. Wow. My family, my siblings, all of them have kids as well. Make sure that we all you know, stick together and do things. Um, our churches. Spend time with my mom and make sure my mom speaks to them as much as possible. In Yoruba, I know it's going to be a lot tougher for them as far as picking up Yoruba than it was for me because you know, they're not as, as, as close to it. But also being very, very specific and being very, very intentional about what you expose them to and explaining things to them. I remember my son came home and one time and said, am I bad because I'm black? I'm like, where, where did you get that from? You know, mm-hmm. just that whole aspect. But then I'm looking at the cartoons he's watching, all the superheroes, the white, the good guys are white. So I had to get him a Marvel, I had to get him a Black Panther Marvel comic. Balance it out, bro, like Chalk and Thunder. How, these, are, these are real comics or heroes that you can look at. So I, Definitely. And also talking to him, like he has a globe in his room. We spin it around, he picks a country, we talk about a country, look it up. I'm trying to raise a global citizen. I'm not trying to raise particularly an American. He is... American by birth, but I want him to have a very global aspect and perspective about the world. Like I said, my parents, I love them so much. They were very single focused, but I yeah. think I have now perspective yeah. that I could add, you yeah. know, that I could understand and kind of have a little bit more nuanced conversation, like with my kids about different things about the yeah. world and be real about Definitely. it. Good, good grades are still there. Like, you know, yeah. like your behavior, your grades are two things that are very, very important to me because your one job right now is school. But in addition to that, like, let's talk about other stuff. Like, what's going on with you? Like, how do you feel? What do you think about this? Like, in Nigerian, growing up in a traditional Nigerian household, kids are not asked for their opinion. Like, what? Like, what do you mean, how do you feel? Well, I don't care. You go ahead and do your homework. You are you you saying? What do you feel? You know, that's just not that. <laughs> right, right. What? Kids, are, your, yeah. your feelings, your considerations are not as considered. That's a really gross generalization. I know some people had you no know, family members that were, were not like that. Just being that nuance and being able to kind of curate their experiences and shepherd that for them a little bit more, more so than my parents did, mm-hmm. I think is the, the slight advantage they might have over my experience where it would just go to school, get good grades, and that's all I care about. I want, I'm going to say some things, and I want you to, first of all, be like, dude, that's, that's, that's silly. Okay. I mean, this is, this is straight off of Google. Okay. All right. And so okay. I'm going to say something, and I want you to tell me what, what that's supposed to mean. Okay. Don't go and be doing shaky, shaky there. That's kind of like don't go acting up in public. Right, like don't right. don't go and start messing things up. Okay, I will show you pepper. Ah, uh, you gonna get your ass whooped. That's, 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 you uh, you know get, that one. Yeah, you about to get your ass whooped. <laughs> okay, I will teach you a lesson. You about to get your ass whooped. There's a lot of ass whooping. Yo, we're a very violent culture. <laughs> like, there's a lot, okay. of, and even in our greeting, like you know, we, we kind of curse each other out in the way we greet each other too somehow. So. What? You stupid boy. Ah, you know, it's kind of like, I'm not really calling you a stupid boy, but it's kind of like, you know, like homie, like you, yeah. you, that type of thing. Okay, so. okay. I don't even know how to say this one. Before NKO? Before NKO. What about what happened before? See, another thing about our language and the way we use yeah, things yeah. is more very expressive. So some things don't have a really technical definition, like not like a Webster dictionary or like a or okay. urban dictionary. You just know what it means. The way it said. The way it this, said. This one yeah. says, like, what do you expect? Yeah. I usually let my guests ask me a question, so go for it. So you said your wife has been to Africa. Why haven't you been? Oh, man. It's a really good question, actually. It's a deeper story than it, it may seem on the surface. One of the reasons I haven't gone to Africa is because I don't feel like I'm ready to go to Africa. I was actually looking at it today, not even unrelated to this, is that I want to find out where I'm from. If I trace my maternal or paternal, never been close to my dad, but that's why I want to tra- trace where my family's from before I can 
go back to somewhere. I really want to know where I'm from. I want to know the history. I want to know the culture. I want to know, like, I want to know where I really came from. That to me is a process. That's like straight up DNA, you know, tracing back as far as I possibly can, maybe finding, it's probably going to find some plantation down south in Mississippi, then figure out where that, that person purchased most of their slaves. Like, I really want to know. I thought about going to South Africa for a soccer, and I was like, I really want to go. And I think at the time, Nelson Mandela was still alive. I was like, I want to see that. I want to see this man. And I was like, when I go back, I want to know where I'm from. That's very important to me because a lot of us don't know where we're from. We all have friends of different backgrounds. Like people are from Ireland, people are from Spain. They know where they came from. Even if they've lived here their whole life, they have a history that somewhere along the way in the transatlantic Mm -hmm. (laughs) slave trade, that got broken. I'm more probably attached to an Americanized culture than anything else. But to your point, I could go kick it (laughs) in Africa. But for me, I don't know. I want it to be like this really meaningful thing. I just can't go and be like, kick it, party. I want to go and have a true experience. And like, One thing we're doing, we're trying to actually partner with one of the DNA companies for our next African versus African-American conversation. So I had a friend who actually did her DNA, found out that most of her genetics came from Africa, Nigeria specifically. Um, And she went to Nigeria for a month. Had another friend who did Cameroon and did the same thing. And the way it changed them was very profound. The way they walked. It's one of those things that when your feet hit the soil, your soul, not the soul of your feet, but your soul and your internal yeah. being knows, like, okay. This is home. This, this is home. There are certain things you do and say and your mannerism, you see it. There are certain things that are, I believe, that are passed down through your blood that you, you can't remove. I want to have that experience. Yeah, definitely, man. I'm not sure which one of the better DNA companies, because they're not paying for uh, advertising space, I'm not going to mention them. I joined Urban League. Well, the Metro Board recently, and they have they have a guy coming to speak who runs a DNA company. I did well, I did my one ninety nine. I did twenty three and me. So I'm, I found I'm, I, I paid money to find out I'm ninety nine point eight percent. Like you know, Sub-Saharan African. I'm like, uh, okay, I kind of knew. Do they get country specific? They get region specific. They also I have like yeah. a point zero zero one percent European and some point zero zero one percent Asian. I have some Ethiopian or some Mesiatic. So it was actually cool. I did it primarily because I found out there was a book written by my great-grandfather that was at Princeton, Yale, Northwestern. Wow. In Stanford. Yeah. And I got a hold of that book and kind of read it, and I was like, it really encouraged me. So I was like, I want to be able to leave something for my kids to kind of look back, hey, this, these are some crumbs I'm going to leave for you, so. Deeper Dish is hosted by Farah and Hank. Intro, mixing, editing is done by Alyssa Moxley. Produced by me, Farah. Our outro was performed by From Beyond These Walls, and the song is City of Dystopia. If you want to contact us directly, feel free to contact us at deeperdishshy at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, our handle is at deeperdishshy. Our website is www.deeperdishshy.com Thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate everybody that's listening to this podcast.